Well, I'll tell you what, um, your, lack, your silence, which is very rare in this church, um, is actually kind of interesting because it's exactly how I felt when I came to the text this week. Uh, literally in the beginning of my sermon, I've written down how I read this text on repeat all week long, and nothing was standing out to me that was unique or different, some new perspective. I preached, I've been in ministry for over a decade, so I've preached Palm Sunday like a lot of Sundays now. And I kept reading it and thinking, man, nothing fresh, nothing new is coming to me. I started listening to the, lot, the liturgist podcast on their Lectio Divina of this passage. Basically, the passage read multiple times as you close your eyes and listen and try to imagine yourself in the story, something that stands out. Nothing was standing out. Finally, towards the end of the week, I was listening. And the very end of this story, something stood out to me. In verse 10, it says, The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. And here's what stood out to me. And they asked, Who is this? Who is this man, Jesus, who comes riding in on a donkey? Who is this? Up to this point in the series, we, we see that Jesus has caused quite a stir in this wilderness series, right? We, we first looked at his tango with the devil in the wilderness. We looked at how he invited Nicodemus, a religious leader, to, to consider a different way of who the Messiah could be and a different way to live as a religious person and what that meant. He invites a tax collector to follow him into some unknown future. He heals a man born blind and actually says it's not about the blind man, but it's actually about all of you religious people who are blind and the people you leave out in life. And then he, last week, he raises Lazarus from the dead. All of these encounters ask, causing people to ask the question, who is this guy? Who is this? Who is this that he can do all of these things and why is he here and what is his purpose? All of this climaxing here as we reach Holy Week, as Jesus finally enters into the city. Over three years, he's done all of these acts that have caused people to ask, who is this? And at 33, his life is quickly and all too soon, I would say, led to a sad end. Because people didn't always like the answer to the question, who is this? Well, it depends on who you ask in the story who he is, Right? Uh, a lot of historians uh, dictate that every year during, during um, Passover, all the Jews would come to the city of Jerusalem. They would bring offerings, they would come for worship, they would come as basically a, a massive family reunion festival. And whenever the Jews were all gathered, Pilate and the Roman government were very, very concerned because they did not treat the Jewish community very well at all. And they were always worried that if they got together too big a group and they organized too widely and they begin to talk about their grievances and frustrations too much with the Romans or you get too large a group of Jews all in the same place at the same time, maybe they would gain enough power and frustration to revolt. I don't know about you, but I can't help but stop and think about our world today and how when large gatherings of marginalized people come together, many in our society become afraid of the power that they may gain or the frustration they may build and quite what that might do to the power structures that exist in our world today. And so, what would Pilate do? Every year at Passover, he would gather because when his question, who is Jesus, was he's an insurrectionist. He's an insurrectionist. So he would gather, coming into town on probably a large steed of some sort, a war steed to exercise power, probably with a bunch of others on their own steeds, Flanked by armed warriors gathering around him, he likely would have been accompanied by chained insurrectionists, other people who had rebelled against the Roman government, to remind those in the community as they were gathering, know your place. Check yourself. You think you want to revolt? 
you'll end up just like the rest who are in chains following me into town. He would show up as a symbol of power, and I can imagine that with all of the, the excitement happening in this city and the, the chatter about Jesus coming into town, Jesus the long-awaited Messiah for some and for others the great prophet, that I'm sure Pilate was thinking, now more than ever we need to exercise our power. For we have a threat on our horizon. So to Pontius Pilate, who is Jesus? As an, is an insurrectionist. To the religious leaders, who is Jesus? Well, we see from all the passages leading up to this very moment, he is basically a heretic. They're afraid that Jesus is going to cause too much of a stir amongst Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate isn't going to go, well, these are the good Jews and these are the bad Jews, and they're just going to take out all of the Jews because this one Jew, Jesus, decided to step out of line. And so they're afraid of that their place, their niche that they've carved out in society is going to be questioned and quenched. And so they need to quiet any other person who steps out of line for fear that they will be pushed out of line themselves. But then the crowds, who is this? Well, it's interesting. At the end of the story, when the crowds get to the end of the story, you know, in our story today that we heard read aloud, the, the, the camel declares, right, that this is Jesus, the king, the savior. But at the end of our story in scripture today, it's interesting that those who see Jesus coming through town, they don't say, oh, this is the Messiah. Clearly, this is the one. This is it. This is who he is. What does it say? It says he's a prophet. So even, even as Jesus enters into town, people fully don't grasp who he is. But yet, what those who are declaring as he comes into town, Hosea, Hosea, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Some realize this is the one, this is the Messiah. But others who are chattering, no, this is just a prophet. <laughs> Boy, there's a lot, of, a lot of confusion. Who is this Jesus? Some perhaps, as he entered into town that day, they might have seen him coming into town in many different ways. Some might have seen him coming into town riding on a donkey as a subversive sign of peace. Most kings likely would have come into town riding on a, a camel or an elephant or a large horse, to declare their dominion and strength over a city in Rome after they conquered it. Particularly like Pontius Pilate, like Mike likely would have done as he came into town this day. But Jesus, in this moment, he rides in a donkey. No one rides in down a donkey into war. <laughs> no one does that. So perhaps this is Jesus showing in a different way through a bunch of pageantry that he will be a king like no other. Some, some believe that when a city was also conquered or there was a sign of peace, that the that whoever conquered would ride in instead on a donkey, instead of a horse, to say, peace has come. But maybe it's not that. Maybe it is just a sign of kingship. It's interesting to think about the fact that uh, when people, come into, people are coming into town, they start doing weird things, right? Jesus comes riding in on a, on a donkey. They break off these palm branches that we all have in our hands today, probably much larger, and they take their coats and they lay them down for Jesus to walk on top of with a donkey. Now, the thing, thing about that is, is it's what's, what's subversive and kind of weird about it, that Jesus sort of maybe is playing into the hands of the ideas of people of what they expected a king to be. Because whenever a king would come over and take over a city, people would begin to lay down their coats and, and their possessions as a sign of surrender. Don't kill us. You killed the armed forces. Don't kill us civilians. We will submit. We will be part of the Roman dynasty now. Leave, leave us alone. It was a sign of surrender in fear of power to come. 
Perhaps in this moment, Jesus is playing into their, their mindset and their ideas of what a king would be, or maybe they were, he was playing into their ideas in some way of what they thought their Messiah would be. They didn't think that Jesus would come and say, put your swords down. They thought Jesus would come and say, pick your swords up, we're going to war. Who was Jesus to them? He's, he's a prophet, he's the Messiah, but maybe he's not quite the prophet or the Messiah they had pictured the way they had hoped. Sometimes I wonder, in the beginning of the story, Jesus uh, tells the disciples, go over to the, this part of the town and tell the guy who owns this particular donkey that the Lord needs the donkey. What a weird thing to say, right? It's possible that when Jesus said that, he knew that for someone to hear the Lord needs the donkey, they would have thought Caesar. Caesar and Pilate often very much so would go into a town and if they wanted something, they would just take it. Sorry, the king needs this. Sorry, those who are more powerful than you need this. We're taking this from you. You have no right, no power here. People were used to that being taken, and perhaps in this moment, that is exactly what Jesus does here, that he plays on that idea that when they hear the Lord needs a donkey, that the people would have just thought, oh, Caesar needs it. I'm not going to fight Caesar. Maybe, perhaps, I don't know. This is the fun part about Scripture is all we can do sometimes is wonder. Sometimes we're left with more questions. That's the beautiful thing about Midrash. If you join us for Good Friday this, this week, on, uh, we're going to be doing a Midrash version of Good Friday. So we're going to read a portion of Scripture, and then we're going to have somebody act out the elaborate version of what that might mean or look like for that person as they experienced leading up to Holy Week. Midrash is a Jewish practice where when they didn't have an answer to something, the Jewish rabbis would sit around and they would, well, I wonder about this, and I wonder about this, and maybe this, and what about this in Scripture? Maybe it's connected to here. They would wonder, and they would try to piece things together. They would try to fill in the gaps. It's a beautiful Jewish tradition. But what we see here maybe is all those things, or maybe Jesus choosing to ride in on a donkey has absolutely nothing to do with subversive kingship or dominating kingship or an, or an agent of peace. Maybe it's just a symbol for a king in Scripture. I mean, we do know that King David as well as King Solomon were known all throughout their kingship to ride on donkeys. Maybe it's more comfortable. I don't know. Maybe it's easier to get up there. I don't know why. They would ride on donkeys, and the prophecy literally tells us out of Isaiah that we heard today that it said that when the Messiah comes, he'll be riding on a donkey. Maybe it was just to fulfill the scripture. I don't know. Who knows? I, we can sit up here, and I could just, for the next 35 minutes, that's not how long my sermon is, don't worry. Um, I could just wonder. But what I think is interesting is, is how the disciples wonder who Jesus is. I mean, they, they had the closest view of him, didn't they? They're always around him. Who, who is this person, right? And, and Jesus literally asks them this question. Just if, This is in Matthew 21 today, what we're reading. But in Matthew 16, so just a few chapters back, Jesus asks them the question, who do people say that I am? And they give a couple different answers. And then he says, okay, well, who do you say that I am? And the answer from Peter only, none of the other disciples, says you are the Messiah, son of the living God. But then in Matthew 20, so just the passage right before the story we read today, something really funny happens. I had never quite caught this until this week. James and John, their brothers, their mom comes to Jesus, their mother, the big guns. And she says, hey, would it be okay if my son James and John sit at your right hand and your left hand when you enter into your kingdom and take you know, your authority and throne? This mom clearly was a helicopter mom. <laughs> clearly, just hovering, just hovering. 
But it's interesting, though, that in Mark's version of the story, he leaves out the mom detail. He doesn't say that mom asked for that. But Matthew, he's busting them out. He's like, you're a mama's boy. Your mom literally asked if you could sit on the right hand and left hand of Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus' response to this is, you don't get it, do you? Are you able to suffer the way that I'm going to suffer for what's to come? When you, when you put yourselves in places of power, in places of vulnerability that question and surrender your privilege and power, people will come for you. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for what will come with being in a position of power that is subversive? In Matthew 20, he says, You know the rulers of this world, they lord over their, over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over and under them. I'm conscious of the Pontius Pilate thing I just talked about. He said, But among you, among us, he says, it'll be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must become a servant. He's saying, listen, the way that I'm going to lead is different. And it's not going to matter who's at my right hand or my left hand. It's going to matter who is oppressed that we're lifting up. Anytime you think it's about you, you've missed the point. Who is this man? The disciples are left asking their questions. Who is this who is this man? No matter who Jesus was to any of these people, what, what, what is evident here is that they reflect the Lenten season that we're in, these, these six weeks leading up to Easter. It's the longing and the waiting and the feeling of powerlessness. Every person in this story is, is juxtaposed against the idea of power, right? You have Pontius Pilate who's afraid he's going to lose power. You have the religious leaders who are afraid they're going to lose their little niche of power and comfortability and they don't want Jesus to screw it up for them. You have the crowds who feel so powerless and tired of being oppressed by the Roman government that they're just waiting and longing for someone to come and deliver them. And then you have the disciples who are like, we are really tired of being fishermen and tax collectors and simple men. We would like to be at the top now. We would like to have some power. They're all in this state of longing and waiting for something to change, something to shift. And I think that this pandemic has given us all the united feeling of what it's like to feel powerless, to be waiting for something to change and to be completely dependent upon outside sources for that thing to shift, for something different to happen. I was hearing uh, this week, listening to several different platforms, uh, reading... Uh, uh, on CNN News as well as the, um, the daily podcast I listened to for the, from the New York Times. And this week, one of the stories I was listening to for the New York Times, there was, they were interviewing different people who are in nursing homes at this time. And many of them who were isolated from families and haven't seen people or experienced touch outside of maybe very simple care. Many of them who are, who are struggling as they are dying or afraid that they may die before ever seeing their family face-to-face -face outside of a screen. And at the very end of this interview, they're talking with the hospital, I mean, with the nursing home administrator. He's kind of quiet on the other end of the line as they're talking about what the experience has been for him to manage this crisis. He writes a statement because he's not quite sure what to say because he's speechless. And so he comes with a written statement it was just a few lines, and by the end of it, he starts crying. The reporter asks, why are you so emotional? What's going on underneath the surface? But put the statement down for a minute. He responds about a couple different patients 
five of whom they had lost this year to COVID. And he says, quote, I felt so powerless to save them. I had just hoped that I could protect them long enough until they could get the vaccine. But for these five, I couldn't save them. He goes on to say, he said, for 40 years, I have provided care to people. And never have I felt more powerless than I have in the last year. And he said, this year will haunt the last 40 years of my life and of my career. Here of another story this week of a family of five kids, one of whom they had adopted from China, and this other sibling of that one was still in China, and just as they were wrapping up the adoption process, COVID came and it was shut down. No more adoption process for the child to be able to come here. It was so close. And now they sit and they wait for it to happen again, for it to open up, for her to be able to come and to be with their family. They asked the second to oldest um, son at the very end of the interview how he felt about not being able to see his other sister who was coming. And he talked about how they had drawn pictures and they did FaceTime, but how she was struggling to understand why she couldn't come and be with them. And he said at the very end, I just feel so powerless to help her. Feeling of powerlessness, I think, is similar and familiar for all of us. There's this powerlessness in this story that causes people to ask, who is this? Is this the one who could finally save us? Is this the one who could finally give us power back? Is this the one who could restore life back to normal? We all know this feeling of powerlessness. It, it is so familiar to us right now. And it is so familiar to those who experienced this first story. Close with this final word that I want us to think about. Because I think that we often go through Holy Week and, and we think, uh, we, 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 we rush through it. We just can't wait for Easter and the celebration. But there's so much time in between. There's, there's so much waiting. There's so much pain in the middle. Pastor at Austin New Church says, perhaps the events of Holy Week aren't about some ancient Jewish rabbi taking the pain and punishment that we deserve so that we wouldn't have to have it, but Jesus showing us a way through something that you and I already assumed was the end. Death. Perhaps Holy Week is a reminder that so much of life is spent in the waiting. The waiting and the feeling of powerlessness as we wait for God to come, as we heard in the Revelation song today, and make things whole again and make things new again. The waiting for something to shift and change in our lives. The waiting for nursing homes to open for people to see their families again. The waiting for China to open so the families can be reunited again. The waiting, you list it, you know what you've been waiting for. The waiting. Holy Week is a small chasm of a reminder of the tension of waiting. Waiting for the one who we ask, who is this? And when is this going to be over? Christmas Eve, not this year, but last year. Many of us were in the sanctuary. It was quite full. Lights dimmering. Heaviness in the room as we both celebrated Christ's birth, but also carried a lot of heavy things in our church. It may seem so far away, but there was a woman visiting that day on that Sunday, I mean that, that Christmas Eve evening. I didn't know her. I'd never seen her in my life. 
but she had found our website and was looking for a place to attend on Christmas Eve. She came up to me after the service, and she said to me, and I wrote this down, this is such a beautiful place with a lot of people grieving. I sense a real heaviness in this room. I hope you can hold it. And I said, wow, you're very discerning. Because I can remember Christmas Eve, two Christmas Eves ago, there was a lot of heaviness in our room, in this room and in our church. There's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of waiting that exists in this place. There's a lot of hurt. And this last year has only added to it. And as I read these words that I had written down from last Christmas Eve, I was reminded again by this very discerning woman that we are still waiting. Pains that were not even related to this pandemic, pains that didn't even come in the last year, some of that we are still holding. As Jesus marches into town again on this Palm Sunday and as we celebrate Jesus' resurrection and as Christmas Eve will come again, as we go through the calendar, sometimes we wait for so long, waiting for God to do something. And as we wait, I think we ask the question, who is this? I think as we ask that question in different seasons, we come with different answers. And I hope and pray that the many faces of who Jesus is and who Jesus revealed Jesus' self to be to us would become more and more clear to us. Such a great comfort as we ask the same question. Who is this? Who is this Jesus that comes into town this Holy Week as we wait?